chapter. All right, thanks. I'd like to read for us part of this as we begin. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 again, starting at verse 22 down to verse 37. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this part of your word this morning, there are some very serious questions that it raises in our mind. And we come to your word and we hear the power of what Jesus is saying. We understand all of that. But we want to make sure that we are right with you. And so, Father, would you teach us by your Holy Spirit today, help us to understand your word and to take it to heart and to see what it is that you want to say to each of us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you know that I like to read and I uh, often bring things into what I'm preaching, stories or illustrations or examples like that. And one of the areas I really like to read about is American history. I just finished reading Ron Chernow's biography of George Washington, which was an excellent book. I uh, just have great... Uh, you know, appreciation for Washington as a leader, the difficulties he encountered trying to hold together an army, basically, that wasn't getting paid and that was volunteer and that came together and were promised things and it wasn't always delivered on, and how they overcame these incredible odds by God's providence to win the American Revolution. 
And then as president, being the first in that office and all of the precedents that he set in terms of how a president should conduct himself. He was very concerned about his honor, his character, his integrity, his reputation, and he guarded that carefully. And because of that, he was really greatly loved by the people. But he was not without opponents. Uh, There were other men who aspired to those positions, who envied him when he was commander of the army, who envied him when he was president of the United States, and even within his own cabinet, there were rivals for power. One of those was Thomas Jefferson, who, unknown to Washington, Jefferson kept feeding the press these stories that were slanderous to Washington. And finally, one day, that did come out, and it created a breach in their relationship that would never be repaired. Uh, There were others, too, who gave attacks on Washington's character and reputation, and that really bothered him. It bothered him that people would blatantly say things that were untrue about him or slanderous. One of the worst charges was a newspaper that questioned his patriotism. And it suggested that actually during the Revolutionary War, Washington was a double agent working for the British, and that he was intent on establishing a monarchy in America. And you you would hear those things, you would see those things in the paper, and as it is today sometimes when lies are put in the press, there are still people who will believe it. But you wonder, given all that he had sacrificed, all that he had done, how people could believe some of the lies that were put out there. You know, when I come to this story and I read about Jesus, I think of how Jesus went around doing so much good. He healed so many people. He was so compassionate and inviting. And yet he was falsely attacked by his opponents time and time again. In the passage we're looking at this morning, Jesus is going to answer the charges of his enemies. This is the third cycle of unbelief and belief that is found in chapters 11 and 12. And there are three questions that I want to answer as we go through this text this morning. Uh, These are questions that I had as a young boy when I started to read through the Scriptures for the very first time. Uh, I remember I came to know Christ in the summer after fourth grade, and so I was about ten years old, and I started reading through the New Testament on my own. And when I came to this passage of Scripture, some of these questions, like, what is the unforgivable sin? You know, just stood out in my mind. I mean, I didn't... Have I done that? Or I certainly don't want to do that. And what is this sign of Jonah that is going to be talked about a little bit later? And how do I know? How can I know if I am in Jesus' family? Those were questions that stood out to me, and they may be questions that some of you have this morning too. So we're going to walk through this passage of Scripture to see what it's about, and along the way I want to address each of those questions as well. What we see in the scripture here, first of all, is that Jesus' miracles are a proof of his identity. The reason he did the miracles he did was to demonstrate his claims, that he was indeed the Son of God, and that he had the authority to forgive sins, he had the authority to give eternal life. All of those things were his by his authority, his power, his identity. And Jesus did these miracles so that they might recognize him. On this occasion, they brought to him a man who was blind and mute 
and demon-possessed. And Jesus healed him. Now, I want you to also think about these miracles, too, uh, in this way, in that when you have a man who is blind, he is unable to see what he really needs. When he is mute, he is unable to ask for what he really needs. And when he is demon-possessed, he is really helpless to set himself free. It is the condition that all of us are in when we are lost, when we are separated from Christ. When we are living in darkness under the power of Satan, you know, we don't know what we need. We can't see it. We can't hear it. We can't say it. We are trapped in this. We need Jesus Christ to set us free spiritually as well. Now, there were others in the ancient world who claimed that they had the ability to control spirits and cast them out. And they would do it by incantations, they do it by spells, they do it by potions or magic charms or things that they would try to use to control the spirit world in some way and to deal with the fears that people had. But Jesus is far different. Jesus commanded the demons by His Word. By His own authority, He would command them to come out and they would have to obey Him. Even more astonishing, though, were these miracles. I mean, to heal a blind man was like raising the dead. I mean, people believed that that would be a sign of the Messiah, that that would be something that the Messiah would do, because no one else could do these kind of miracles. And so on this occasion, when Jesus healed this man, the people, the, the crowds that watched him, began to ask the question, could this be the Son of David? Now, the reason that they had some doubts was that they thought of David as this warrior king, this man who would lead them to victory, this one who was a conquering hero. And they looked at Jesus, and Jesus seemed so humble and mild and poor and common that they did not see him as this conquering king, this mighty warrior. And they wondered... Can this really be the son of David? Well, the Pharisees uh, heard their question and they said, No, absolutely not. They said it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. It's like they can't even say his name. They just kind of cast these slurs on Jesus and they say, It's really Beelzebub. Beelzebub, we think, means Lord of the house. It's a reference here to Satan. That this guy's working for Satan. That's why he's doing these things. And Jesus shows how illogical their claim is. I mean, he goes on to say that a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. I mean, really, do you think that Satan is going to fight against Satan and he's going to be setting these people free as you have seen me do? And he said, if I do this by Satan's power, well, then Satan is fighting himself. And if I cast out the demons by Satan, then by whom do your people drive them out? But if I drive them out by the Spirit of God, then God's kingdom has really come upon you. And I am the Messiah. Now, he doesn't add that last statement there in terms of what he directly says, but that is the implication of what he is doing. If I do this by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has broken into our world, just as I said, 
and I am the Messiah, is what Jesus is saying. And he used an illustration here that they could understand of a strong man. And he said, you know, how can you, how can you steal something from a strong man's house unless you first bind that strong man and then you can take his possessions? The strong man in this case is Satan. And the possessions that Jesus is talking about are people whom he is delivering from demon possession, from darkness, from their sin, and he is setting them free and bringing them into the kingdom of God. How can you do that unless you first bind the strong man? And so Jesus is claiming here again the authority to bind Satan and to set the captives free. It is the work that Jesus still does when he works through his church, he works through his believers, and he brings the gospel to those who have never heard. It's not we who set anyone free. We share the good news of what Christ can do, and when people turn in faith to Jesus, they are set free from darkness. I love it when we have groups out at our church who share their testimony, like when we've had Minnesota Teen Challenge out, and we've had people who struggle with addictions in their life, or they are struggling with other difficulties, and they tell of what Christ has done in setting them free. I love it when those who are involved in the jail ministry tell about those who have found themselves literally captives literally in uh, behind closed doors or walls because of what they have done. And there in that captive situation, they come to know Christ who brings this change and renewal and sets them free. What a joy that is to know that there is a God who loves us, who sent His Son to be our Redeemer, that we might be free. Well, secondly, what we see in this passage is that to reject Jesus is ultimately the unforgivable sin. To reject Jesus is the unforgivable sin. Jesus calls for a decision here, and we see that in verse 30, when he says to them that he who is not with me is against me. You have to make your choice. It's either one or the other. Either you are for me or you are against me. Either you are gathering with me or you are scattering. And then he goes on to make this statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or this, what is called also the unforgivable sin. And he wants us to consider how serious this decision is that we are making. There is a sin that can never be forgiven. And here it is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us, and he makes a, a slight distinction here when he says that, you know, someone can speak against the Son of Man and that will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I mean, how is that different? Or what is he talking about there? Well, there are examples in Scripture even of, the, of Paul, who as Saul, before he came to know the Lord, was breathing threats against Jesus. He did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. He was persecuting Christians. He wanted them to be put to death. And on the road to Damascus, he was stopped in his tracks by a light from heaven. And he heard a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And his eyes were open, and he saw Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now there was a man who you would have thought was violently opposed to Jesus. He was and yet was converted by the Spirit of God. 
And Jesus is saying there are times in this life when people may not understand who I am. They may not know it. They may not understand that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And they are not beyond the hope of redemption. But when someone, as in this case, so clearly sees the work of the Spirit, who demonstrates who Jesus is and attests to who He is, and they hear that call and they still reject it, they can put themselves beyond hope of forgiveness. From our human point of view, we don't know when someone crosses that line. But the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a willful rejection of the Holy Spirit's work in pointing to Christ and slanderously attributing to Satan the work of God. It is a very serious charge when someone does that. They have seen this witness of the Spirit. They have heard God's call and they reject it. And they turn against Him. Now, if you are worried or you know someone who is worried that they may have committed this sin, it's a very good indication that you have not. Those who reject Christ to this degree would no longer care about that. They would no longer even be worried if they had committed it or not. But what is ironic in this passage is that the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of blasphemy because Jesus claimed to be God. They understood what these miracles were about. They understood what he was saying here when he talked about him being greater than David or greater than Solomon or the other things we're going to see. But it was in fact they who were guilty of blasphemy by rejecting the witness of the Spirit and by the slanderous things that they were saying about Jesus that He does this by Satan's power and not giving glory to God. Jesus said a tree will be known by its fruit. Look at Jesus' life and what do you see? You see a man who was compassionate, a man who had mercy upon those who were hurting, a man who cared about the poor and the needy in the land. When you look at the Pharisees, what do you see? You see men who were envious, who hated Jesus, who were slanderous in what they were charging against Him, and who wanted to keep their own power. And Jesus broadens then this statement about you... You shall know a tree by its fruit to also say that on the day of judgment all men will have to give an account for every careless word that they have spoken. It's not just the Pharisees on that day who will give an account, but all men. I mean, think about that. That's like, you know, if there were a tape recorder hung around your neck recording everything that you said every day, every moment, every statement you made, every word that came out, every kind of immediate, you know, response to somebody cutting you off in traffic or somebody saying something on the news or somebody who did something to you and you have a response. All of those things were recorded. I remember again as that fourth grader reading these verses and thinking about my words and thinking about how often, you know, as a kid I wanted to sound cool or fit in with others and so I would use, you know, profanity or I'd think, you know, I want to fit in with those around me. And I remember reading those words and they cut to my heart because there's a day coming 
when I and all of you will give an account to Jesus for every word we have uttered. I, I mean, how can you not be sobered by that? How can that not make you think about the things that we say? And so when we come to the Scripture and it says, you know, there should not be a hint of profanity or immorality or coarse jesting or any of those kind of things in our life because they are unbecoming for Christians. Instead, we are to say those things that build up, that encourage, that help one another in the body of Christ. So it's it's not just you know, our use of the Lord's name or profanity, but it's even just the attitude of our heart. It even deals with things like sarcasm that can tear people down as opposed to words of encouragement and affirmation that build people up. It would relate to how we teach, how we coach, how we parent. I mean, all of those areas are covered by what Jesus is saying here. It is a very sobering word. And then thirdly, as we go on, the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Messiah is His death and resurrection. And we're going to see that in verses 38 to 45. Let me read this for us. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to Him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from You. Isn't that kind of funny? I mean, (laughs) you know, what has Jesus been doing? But they're saying, no, we want to see some miraculous sign from you, some, some clear demonstration that you really are who you claim to be. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. And the Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, he goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation they asked Jesus for a sign but what more could Jesus do I mean all of the miracles he performed his whole life his teaching the prophecies that were fulfilled all of those were signs that he was the Messiah and so Jesus replies to them about this wicked and adulterous generation asking for a sign it's not just the Pharisees it is all who are there that he includes now in this statement. And there are many people like that today too. They've heard about Christ. They have read through the Scriptures, the Gospels. They have heard this. The Holy Spirit has spoken and yet they still refuse to believe. They still refuse to come to the truth and to place their faith in Jesus. And Jesus said that no sign would be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? It is the sign of Jesus' death 
and resurrection. But just as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Now some have questioned the timing of that. Three days, three nights, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was crucified on Friday, he rose again on Sunday. How does that add up? That difference has led some, like James Montgomery Boyce, believes that Christ was crucified on a Thursday in order to fulfill that. And he looked at, in the year eighty thirty, there was actually a double Sabbath. There was a Passover Sabbath on Friday and a regular Sabbath on Saturday. And so he, and there are others like that, who believe that Christ was actually crucified on Thursday and rose again on Sunday in order to meet this requirement. But traditionally, what we have understood from a Jewish reckoning of time is that any part of a day could be counted as a day. And so when you have Friday, even though it was only part of a day, that counts as one day, and Saturday is the second day, and he rose again on the third day, on Sunday, just as he said. Now the point of what Jesus is saying here isn't about the timing of those things, but the fact of his death and resurrection. And he said, I want you to think about how when Jonah came back, as it were, from the dead and this huge fish, you know, vomited him up on the shore and he came out and he was looking bleached and he's looking like this man who is just a, a, a prophet who's kind of, you know, maybe touched a little bit here. What's going on in this guy's life? And he goes to Nineveh and he begins to preach, repent, and turn to God. The people heard and responded to him. And that city repented and they were given another generation of time. He's saying that one greater than Jonah is now here. And you should listen to him. He talked about the queen of the south who came to visit Solomon and to see if the word was true that she had heard about his wisdom and glory and splendor. And she came and she saw that not even the half of it had been told her. And Jesus is saying, one greater than Solomon is here. Again, these are powerful statements. I mean, Jesus is making these strong statements. He's claiming to be greater than Jonah, the prophet. Greater than Solomon, who was the wisest of kings. Greater than David, who was considered to be Israel's greatest king. He's greater than the temple, which means he is also greater than the priest. And he is greater than the Sabbath, because he is Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, all of that we've seen in these last two chapters. And you go, what sort of man makes these claims? I mean, no ordinary man would make those kind of claims. They are astounding. To claim to be greater than the prophets, greater than the priests, greater than the kings. Who can do that? Unless they are indeed God. And you can understand why C.S. Lewis you know, wrote those famous words about this trilemma that either Jesus is Lord or He is a liar or He is a lunatic. I mean, you have to make your choice. Either He was and is who He claimed to be, He is Lord and God, and we should bow before Him in that way, or He was a liar who was intentionally deceiving people, or He was just plain nuts. And He didn't know what He was saying. But look at His life. Look at his words. Look at his teaching. Look at his fruit. 
and you will see that there was never a man like Jesus. And these men who wrote the Gospels were eyewitnesses. They saw, they heard, they gave testimony to what Jesus did. Well, Jesus gives another sober warning here again in verses 43 to 45 when he talks about how an evil spirit, when he comes out of a man, it goes through Arab places seeking rest and does not find it. It's actually uh, one of the clearest statements in Scripture on how a demon works or what they desire. How a demon can exist as a disembodied spirit. You know, he can exist in our world as this disembodied spirit, but he really desires a body to possess. And when uh, someone may have been healed like this man in this miracle where the demon was cast out of him, if that man does not repent and come by faith to God, where he is filled with his Holy Spirit, that demon, Jesus says, basically goes around, you know, looking for a place to dwell, and if he finds this house swept clean and in order, but the presence of God is not there, he can inhabit him again. And that man's condition would be far worse than it was before. And what Jesus is saying, the same is true for this generation, that have seen the witness of God. If someone has had that opportunity and seen so clearly the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is and heard the Spirit speak and they reject all of that, their condition is now worse than before because they have a greater accountability. There's a warning here. Do not put off your decision. Come to Christ today. And finally, Jesus ends this section. And where we see it here in verses 46 to 50, He talks about His true family. And He tells us that all who truly believe in Jesus are part of His family. Look at verses 46 to 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Again, someone told them, Your family is outside wanting to speak with you. In Mark's Gospel, we read that they came because they really thought that Jesus was out of His mind. That He had taken leave of His senses. They did not yet believe in Him. That day would come when James, his half-brother, would become the leader of the Jerusalem church. And when Jude, his half-brother, would be the author of that second to the last book of the New Testament. But at this point, even they are shocked by the claims of what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? It is all who do the will of my Father in heaven. And what is his will for us? It is that we might believe in the one he has sent. That we might believe in Jesus. And our obedience, then, is the proof that our faith is genuine. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Him. But the changed life that He produces in us is really the fruit that we've really come to believe. And that's why you need to look at both. It's not just simply saying, yes, I believe, but there's no desire to follow. That doesn't make a person a Christian. 
Praying a prayer doesn't make a person a Christian. It is faith in Christ where you are born again by the Spirit of God and where there is this life changed. The one who says that I believe in Him should live as Jesus lived. And Jesus Himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What we see in Matthew's Gospel is that there are three groups of people. There are the crowds. Those are the people that are interested in Jesus, but they're not committed, and they are not saved. They came because he fed the hungry, or they came because they saw the miracles, or they thought his teaching was really interesting, but they did not believe. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, the secular authorities at that time, are those who rejected Jesus, and they are guilty of an unpardonable sin. They're the ones who said he did this by the power of Satan. And the disciples are that third group. They are those who hear the Word of God and who obey it. They are the ones that have chosen. They believe that Jesus is Lord and He is Savior and He is King. And they are the ones who are His true family. You know, those same three groups of people are out there today. Every day we meet them. We have friends that have not yet come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They may be curious, they may be interested, but they've not yet made that decision to place their life in Jesus' hands. And there is still that opportunity for those to come to know Christ. There are also those who violently oppose Him. And we just don't know, again, when someone's crossed that line where they have gone too far in their rejection of Jesus, we leave that in God's hands. Our part is to pray and share the good news because we never know when God may reach down and change someone's life just like he did with Paul. But what we want is to help more and more people become disciples who hear the Word of God, who obey it, put it into practice in their life, and who would say of Jesus, He is my Lord, my Savior, and my King. Let's pray. Father, as we think about that today, you know our hearts. And first of all, we want to begin with ourselves and make sure that we are right with you. And if you're here today and you've never made that commitment to Christ as Savior and Lord, I would invite you to just, in your own heart right now, to say that to Jesus. Jesus, if I've never done this before, I want to know you as my Savior. And I ask you to forgive my sins, come into my life, and be my Savior and Lord. And He will take you at your word and He wants you to grow and to take those next steps of faith and obedience and trust. But maybe you're thinking of friends today or relatives or others that you know who have not yet come into that relationship with Christ. Would you pray for them by name? And would you look for opportunities to reach out and to share that good news so that others might come to know Christ too? Father, help us to be your witnesses this week. In Jesus' name, amen.